If you have a Bible, we're going to have to open up to Matthew 25 today, one of my favorite chapters to preach, uh, one, of, one of the most important uh, messages that Jesus preached. Actually, the last sermon he ever preached uh, is found in Matthew 25, um, last public sermon at least, which I think makes, a pretty important, uh, makes it pretty important. We're going to be looking at uh, a lot of this chapter. We're, we're actually going to be looking back at chapter 24, but I felt like the best opening read for this conversation, this conclusion conclusion to what has been a month-long conversation about Judgment Day. I think the best way to get into this conversation is by reading Matthew 25, verse 1 through 13, a parable that you've probably all heard before, um, and pretty powerful one at that. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins or those young women that were part of this wedding party, they all arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready and went in with him to the wedding, the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. I got to ask you a question. We'll have a little fun with this for, uh, for the beginning part. Has anybody ever ran out of gas? You have. I'm not make, make people show hands because the ones that don't raise their hands would just be lying. Or, you just, or, or you're just perfect and you, don't, you, always, you always have more than you need in the tank, which, you know, most of us, it, we get real, feel, we feel bad about that one time we ran out of the gas and, you know, the other 100,000 times we've been in our car, we've done just fine. You know, we've all done it. I've done it, I think, twice in my life, or at least I'm only going to talk about twice. I'm only going to talk about two times. Um, I can only be embarrassed so much. So um, there's not a more demoralizing, helpless feeling, I don't think, than, than running out of gas. I mean, we're in these giant, oversized toys. Uh, I don't, you know, we were never meant to be, you know, strapped into a vehicle, enclosed metal on a highway. I mean, when God made everything thousands of years ago, do you think he ever envisioned us all being in these little, in these little spaceships? But nonetheless, we spend most of our time, or a lot of our time, you know, going to and fro on asphalt or, uh, in, in these in these giant, you know, pieces of, uh, of equipment on wheels, um, there's not a, not a more demoralizing, uh, helpless feeling than going down a road and uh, you slowly come to a stop and you know there's nothing you can do, right? You can, you can try, you can hit the gas all you want and it's just going to keep doing less than it was. So, um, you know, once um, I was, uh, once I was uh, 17, about, se I think I was 17, I was in high school, about five miles from home on a Saturday night, um, and, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but then right after I got my, my current car a few years ago, um, I, I ran out of gas. So I'll speak to the most recent incident first. Um, so I think all of us know when you get a new vehicle, it takes some time kind of getting to learn and getting to know your car and, and kind of, you know, observing all the different things that it's putting at you on the dash and kind of knowing what it can do and what it, what it can't do. Um, you know, one of the things that everyone learns quickly about their car, uh, unless you're someone who only, keep, who always keeps your, your tank, you know, at least half 
full or, or over half full. Um, one of the things you learn quickly is um, how long you can go when the light comes on. You know, you, you, you don't know when you get a new car, you know, hey, how long can I make this go, right? Or how, how far can I stretch this? Um, you can enter, you know, you know, you can enter a conversation and you can hear someone say something about the light coming on their dash and everyone instantly knows you're talking about your car and, and trying to stretch fuel. So I had not seen the light come on in the car yet and I had been doing some errands one afternoon and I was actually en route to the gas station literally like two miles from where I was um, and it was uh, on a downhill slope. The, the road I was going just go, was going downhill. So um, suddenly the car got slower and slower and slower and, and, and you know, I, I stopped. Um, you know, Gravity began to, to take control and I rolled and kind of got into the turning lane and, and you know, eventually I had to get out and thankfully I had some people that helped me get it, get it to where I needed to go. Um, but I think we can all relate to that experience. We've all seen the light come on on our dash and we think to ourselves, I've got plenty of time to get gas um, and, until you don't have any time to get gas. But we've all thought that. We see the light come on and we think, you know, I've got, I've got at least, you know, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 miles. Um, most new vehicles, the light means that there's about two or three gallons left in the tank. Um, of course, a lot of factors play into that. Um, you know, how you drive, how much brake you use, how, how hard you are on the gas. Uh, again, there's so many things that makes that two or three gallon number really unreliable. Just like when you say your car gets 20 miles per gallon, it may sometimes get 15, it may sometimes get 25, and if you sit idle, you don't even know what it's doing. So you can't really go by those numbers um, with an exact science. They're not really hard and fast reliable. Um, some cars, they say when the light comes on, you've got maybe 100 miles left, but that's a big window, isn't it? 25 miles, 30 miles, 100 miles, and it depends on how you use the gas. I mean, that's really not something that we should be that reliable or we should rely that much on yet we do uh, we, we we push it to the most uh, to the greatest limits that we that we can so uh, you know again don't take my word for it you might I think I think you at least have 25 miles when the light comes on but lo and behold somebody's probably going to run out at 24 so again don't take don't take my word for that so um, I learned my lesson with with my with my car um Hopefully, I, I won't. I won't have to, to deal with that ever again. But but I got to talk about some foolishness that um, uh, I, I, that happened a long time ago. So 2007, almost half my lifetime ago at this point, maybe half my lifetime ago. So that makes you feel really old. Uh, makes me feel really old. I don't know what it does to y'all. But uh, 2007, um, I was in high school and, and I was very fortunate. You know, I, my parents paid for the gas that I put in the truck. I, I, I didn't go anywhere but school and maybe to a friend's house once a couple times a week. I, I didn't really use a lot of gas. Uh, back then, gas was like $2 a gallon. So, I mean, you know, you did, there was never a reason. There was no reason back in those days to run out of gas. I mean, nowadays, $4 a gallon. Oh, man, you know, that's a lot of money. I get it. There was no reason to run out of gas before like 2010 or whenever, you know, 2008, whenever gas went crazy and didn't come back. Um, but here I was, um, like five miles from home is the farthest I ever went. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was, I was running on empty. Now, uh, and, and again, I had no excuse. My, my dad had a construction company back then that was going all over the place, commercial, had several vehicles. We had gas pumps on the property. I, sh I should never, ever ever have run out of gas back in those days. But, you know, I, I, this is so stupid. I was really into NASCAR back, I'm, I like NASCAR now, but I was really into NASCAR back in the day. Um, 2007, you know, Jeff Gordon was having this all-time great season, and uh, I, I was really kind of really amped up about, about racing back then. So um, if you know anything about NASCAR, if you watch racing, every once in a while there are, these, there are the races that are, they call fuel mileage races, and, and really that's all, that's all just, you know, um, the, 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 they turn into 
they pit it at the very, very close to their window. You know, maybe they can run 60 laps, but they pit it 65 laps to go. And it turns into who can stretch it five extra laps or who can make the tank go farther than maybe they should. And then they'll really talk about how some drivers are pushing the clutch in and they're just coasting through the corners. And I really like that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I'd play video games and I would try to do that in the games and make the car go, make the tank last longer. So uh, it, I was really, really, really kind of caught up in that. And, and as you would watch those races and as you watch that, you know, those, any kind of, you know, any kind of race, um, you'll learn that some teams are willing to take the risk that, you know, hey, I have nothing to lose. Um, why not try to make this last longer and, and why not kind of steal a win or steal a, a good finish out of it? So the risk being, you know, you're probably, you know, you might run out and finish last or, you know, you could stretch it and, and, and get something pretty crazy out of it. So when I first started driving, I really liked the idea of seeing how far I could make my, my truck go on gas mileage. And I don't even know what the gas mileage was. It was, you know, back in those days, there was no digital dash. You didn't see what you were getting. So, I mean, I didn't know what it was, and I didn't look it up. So, uh, again, that, back when I first started driving, I was really into the idea of seeing, how, seeing if I could make that, that, that window, that window stretch. So, this is why you shouldn't, 15, 16, 70-year-olds probably shouldn't drive. Our brains are not, our brains were not what they should be back then or at that point in our development. So I'm going down the road and I would like let off the gas and I would coast and I would try to see, you know, how I would avoid using the brakes because I would, I would listen to what they would say on the TV broadcast and I was like, I can do that in my car. You know, I can go down a hill and I can let off the gas and I can coast and then I can not use the brakes. You know, I would just do that stuff because I was trying to see if I could save gas like they did. And um, so I, I had been riding around on empty for days, for days, for days. And I was probably, again, less than five minutes away from home um, and, and the road that I would, had to go to come home there was a downhill uh, downhill slope a bridge and then an uphill slope so here I go and I'm going down the hill and I'm letting off the gas and it was like 10 o'clock at night I don't remember not very late but but still late enough and then as I go up the hill it just it just starts to slow down and I was like man I think I made it at least like 25 30 miles farther than I probably should have I felt good about myself until I had to call dad and he had to come put gas in, in the truck that night and I kept felt kind of felt kind of dumb but I remember thinking to myself I probably shouldn't say this, but hey, I should have ran out days ago. But I, but I, I made it. I made it a few days. A few days passed. But I, I learned my lesson that night. I think I learned my lesson. Don't take the risk when it comes to gas mileage. Um, save that for video games. Save that for for sports. Don't don't take the risk in your personal car, um, because that night I didn't I didn't win the race. I didn't win anything. Um, now, again, uh, the, the dash was very basic. There was no way for me to know, you know, later on when I got my car, you know, nowadays you can actually see the gas mileage fluctuate. You know, it'll say 20, it'll say 30, and you'll think, wow, I'm getting really good mileage. And the temptation is always there for me to think, how far can I make this go? But I think better of it, thankfully. Um, you know, when you're sitting on the side of the road, there's no reset button. There's no rewind button. Uh, you know, when, when you run out of gas, there's no way to run it back and, and see if you can um, uh, and, and redo it like you can, you know, in and, and, and video games. So I learned that, uh, that, that that's not a smart thing to do. Now, we all know that. We all know that, our, that it's not worth risking it when it comes to gas mileage. Yet we've all taken that risk, haven't we? We've all been in our vehicles and we've all tried to push it as far as close to the edge as possible and we do it we do it in a lot of areas of life um, some risk we consciously consider others we never really give a passing thought most things that we do 
Probably everything that we do comes with some kind of disclaimer. Um, but we don't really pay attention to those disclaimers most of the time. We don't read the back of the label of everything that we eat and see, and, and, and see if there's anything in there that might be bad for us. I mean, all of it's bad for us at some point. But we don't really analyze that stuff. Somebody will say something, well, that's, that's got this in it or that in it. And we might be a little bit nervous. But most of us, we don't pay attention to the risk in doing a lot of the things that we do in life. Uh, most of the time, we, we don't care. We may monitor our diets for health reasons, but isn't it true that when you're, when you're on a diet or when you're doing something, when you're trying to, to monitor how much salt you take in or how much sugar you take in, isn't it true that really your goal is to get as close as you can to the maximum? That your goal isn't, I need to leave a big window. Your goal isn't, well, I'm only supposed to have this much. I'm going to only have this much, much less. Your goal is to get as 0.001 as close as you can because if the doctor said you can have this much you're going to use as much as that buffer that you have as much as that room as you have right we get right up to the point of dangerous uh, to the point of unhealthy cholesterol sugar calories whatever our budget is we use every decimal point we can um, uh, to, to consume and most of the time, we pay the price for it, right? Everybody says, hey, if you keep eating that, you're probably going to pay the consequences for it. I think all of us have the heartburn and the stomach issue, whatever. We've all dealt with that before, probably as a result of not eating well when we were younger. Uh, people used to tell me all the time, if I didn't quit looking at screens that, weren't di that were dimly lit, or if I didn't quit you know, doing things on TVs or computers all the time with you know, uh, playing this or doing that, I probably would have bad eyesight one day. And lo and behold, that's probably, that's probably true. But, but isn't it true? There are some risks that we're just willing to take. There are some risks that we, we are just willing to sign up for. And you can call it stubbornness. You can call it negligence. You can call it ignorance. You can call it carelessness. Regardless of what inspires, uh, inspires us or how we excuse it, at some point, the simple fact is we know there are risks and we accept what's at stake. I know that maybe most of you don't think about this kind of stuff, but, but I do. I think there's a reason why there are some risks we accept and some risks we get super fixated about and we get concerned about. Our brains, our brains compartmentalize. Our brains are supercomputers. Our brains do things that we don't even realize that we'll never even comprehend. Even the people that are experts on the brain don't understand it completely. But our brains have a way of prioritizing some things and minimizing other things, and they do it almost instantaneously. Uh, sometimes it's impossible to figure out why the brain fixates on certain things and certain risks and completely downplays other risk at the same time. At some point, we just have to chalk it up as there are a thousand transactions going on in our brains and handshakes going on in our brains at all times, from neurons to chemicals, um, and it's beyond us to really grasp it. But here's where the Bible has some advice for our brains. And you think, well, the brain, you know, that's psychology. The Bible doesn't have anything to say about psychology. It's spiritual, and, and that's true. The Bible is a spiritual book. Uh, but we are not flesh and blood alone. Uh, we are creatures made in the image of God. We, are, uh, we have the breath of God in us. We, have a, we are a living soul because of God. We don't believe in deism, the idea that God made everything and then turned it loose. We believe that God is a hands-on God. Yes, he puts things, systems in place. And yes, he gave us what we needed to operate kind of self-sufficiently as people, as, as a universe. But he is hands-on. He is involved. He is active. He is sovereign. So yes, our brains, our organs, like our hearts and our kidneys and our lungs... But, but you all know this, and we know this, but we're, we're, we're weird about our brains. 
If you go to the heart doctor or a specialist about your liver or your kidney or, or your stomach, they'll tell you certain things that you may need to get those organs working right, but they'll also tell you there, there are some things that only you can do to improve your situation. They'll say that you've got to monitor what you put in to your body and you need to exercise with your body. That yeah, you can take this cholesterol medicine to help out this everything, but you probably need to monitor what you eat and you probably need to exercise and, and get your body you know, through, into some disciplinary rhythm. And I think the same thing's true for our minds. We may be intimidated by how our minds work and we don't, we, we don't know why they do what they do, but while there are some things that are beyond our ability to control, the Bible says to us that we can control what goes into our minds and we can exercise our minds and we can discipline ourselves to focus on the right things. Proverbs 4, Solomon says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. So your eyes and your, your gaze, that's a key, that's a, the pathway to your mind, to so what you're focusing on. Ponder the path of your feet and your ways will be sure. Do not swerve left or right your foot. Do not turn your foot to evil. So the correlation in this text is our feet follow our actions. Do you see that? Your mind will produce actions based on what you focus on and what you dwell on. So what we put into our minds impacts where our minds direct us and how our minds guide us. So bringing this back to weighing out our risk in any given scenario, if there is a great risk that we are ignoring, it's possible to rein our minds in and focus on what we ought to. And if we're giving too much observance to the wrong things, then it really comes down to pulling away our, pulling away our attention or changing our attention. So... Here we are wrapping up this conversation about Judgment Day, a day that Jesus said is coming soon, a day that Jesus came on the scene predicting was something that we will all face one day or another. Either time will run out on us or we will run out of time. Whichever way it works, the kingdom of God is coming soon. Now, maybe the last few weeks have helped bring into focus to your mind the importance and the weight of being prepared for that day. We've even talked about how we can even anticipate it. We can look forward to it because it explains so much about this life that we don't understand here and now. But remember, remember how Jesus began to preach about this day. Remember how Jesus began to sound the alarm that this day was coming soon. He started that that. that movement with a single word repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand his his word his one word sermon was repent now a lot of us know repent based on how it's been preached but i don't know a lot of i don't know if a lot of us know what it really means Repent is from a Greek word that literally means to change one's mind. Now, you may think, based on what you learned in church, that repent means to change your ways, to change your actions, to change your life. That's not what it means. 
Repent means, first and foremost, change what you're thinking about. Change what you're focused on. Change what your eyes are fixed on. What your gaze is focused on. Change what's going into your eyes, what's going into your mind, what's focused, what you're focusing on with your mind. Repent does not mean change your life. Repent means change your mind. And that's a very important distinction. We often fast-track repentance into meaning change your ways. But the Bible is much more practical than that. Jesus acknowledges that what I think all of us already know, but sometimes hearing it helps, us, helps it click. No one will ever change their ways until they change their minds. Have you ever tried to make someone do something that they had in their minds they weren't going to do? How long did that last? They did it in front of you, but when you left, they didn't do it anymore, right? Repentance means change your mind. No one ever changes their ways until they change their mind. Nobody ever changes their behavior until they first change their beliefs or their convictions. And to make it even more simple than that, more specific, beliefs and convictions, changing our minds only comes on the heels of changing our focus, altering our attention. So that being said, I I hope the last few weeks have helped, helped all of us focus on that coming day, this future transition from now to next, earth to eternity. And what I thought would be the best way to land this plane, what I feel like is a necessity when presenting the full spectrum of this day and how to prepare for it, is to be honest and clear about what's at stake what's at risk. We've discussed the rewards that await us on Judgment Day. We've we've talked about the relief that we will experience knowing that all things truly worked out for the good. But we cannot underestimate, we cannot downplay the eternal risk that hang in the balance if we do not prepare for this day as we should. Towards the conclusion of his ministry, literally 72 hours before he was arrested and before he would die, Jesus presented a series of sermons back-to-back on the matter of Judgment Day. The last sermons he ever preached were on this day. Particularly, he preached about the risk of ignoring it or not giving proper preparation for it. In the introduction to this message, Jesus talks about the certainty of Judgment Day. He talks about how there's going to be signs in the age and signs of the time that should let us know how volatile our world is and how soon this day is approaching. In Luke's version, he says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads. And he doesn't mean straighten your life up. He means straighten up, look up. Again, back to that word, repent, change your mind, change your focus. What are you focused on? You might ought to change that because your redemption is drawing near. So I want to listen to how Jesus gave his audience, his generation, one final warning. And it's going to be back up in chapter 24, beginning in verse number 36, if you'll turn a page back or look back a few paragraphs This is what should be on the top of our minds. According to Jesus, this should be something that we think about often, frequently. Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
And people say, people get really fixed up, focused, tripped up by that. Well, why does it, what does it mean that God knows that Jesus didn't know? That, that's, just, that's just Jesus' way of saying, I'm not telling you when it's going to happen. That's only for heaven to know. I'm on earth, I could tell you, I'm not going to. My Father knows that's only, that's exclusively throne of God information. So don't ask questions, don't make charts and predict and do all that stuff. You're never going to figure it out. I'm not telling you. I could tell you, I'm not going to. That would, that would save us a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? Nobody knows the day or the hour. It's only for heaven to know. But as, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So we know the story of Noah, right? World was a mess. God said, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah, I'm going to save you by teaching you how to build a boat. And you're going to get on the boat when I tell you to get on the boat. And I'm going to save you from the storm. So pretty, comp, pretty simple solution, right? And I'm going to, you're going to warn the world. And anybody that wants to get on the boat with you, they're welcome to. They're encouraged to. They're invited to. For, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking and that doesn't, that doesn't mean they were partying. That just means they were just doing everyday stuff. They eat, they drink, they get married. They were, given, they were given to marriage as in they were just living their lives. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. So up until the very last moment. They were just living. Because that's what people do. They just live. 39, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away or swept them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's saying it's similar in our own generation. Now, Luke's version of this same message adds a similar variable. He references Lot, the story of Lot. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. So again, doing just normal stuff. But here's what Jesus is saying. At the top of all their lists were the wrong things. Now, don't mishear me. Because I know when a preacher says something is wrong, you automatically hear that as bad or sinful. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what I'm saying. Life and the choices we weigh require much more thoughtfulness than just distinguishing between good and bad. Sometimes things aren't bad. They're just not worthy of the top spot. Does that make sense? Sometimes there's not going to be a verse that says that's bad, that's sinful. Sometimes we've got to back up and think, is this worthy of first place in my life? Or second or third or fourth place? But here's what happens. When we choose one thing over another, we are saying that some risks are more serious and pressing. And you might not consciously do this, but when you choose to prioritize one thing over another, you are saying, well, the risk of ignoring this thing are greater to me, are more serious to me than the risk of ignoring this other thing. But know why we live as, but now we live as if this life is all there is, or that's what his generation was doing or their generations were doing. We often agree. We often make the same decisions. We decide that we cannot risk potentially missing out or being left out or being called out as ignoring what the rest of the world is prioritizing. We believe the hype about this world and how achieving certain heights and experiencing certain milestones and reaching certain goals, we believe they're all essential at getting the most out of this life. So we focus and we dwell and we hitch ourselves to these dreams and these visions all the while, our minds cannot be stretched so thin, are focused on the things of God, are strained or even minimized or even depleted. So 
Jesus says here, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying, they were living their lives, they were building, they were planning, they were buying, they were selling. He's not condemning those things. So just hear me very clearly. He's not saying those things are bad. He's just saying, hey, are those things really worthy of first place in your life? Should all of your life revolve around those things? He's not condemning relationships by no means. But from your home to what you do everywhere else, he's highlighting that we struggle juggling our commitments and the direction those commitments steer us in. We better consider what's more important or most important. He's not saying certain things shouldn't be or cannot be on our list of priorities. He's just saying that we better be sure the first place is given to the right thing. And it's way too dangerous for him not to confront us about this. But notice something. What does Jesus say at the end of verse 38? They were doing these things until the day that Noah entered the what? The ark. The ark that had been being built for years. The ark that Noah had given his life to build. The ark that Noah was pointing to, saying to his generation, this is our ticket to be saved. As in they all knew it was coming. Nobody was caught off guard. No one was surprised. So guess what, folks? Whether you like this subject or don't like this subject, whether it makes you feel good or makes you kind of, you know, we talked about that week one. We know, we know that Jesus is coming again. I don't know how soon, tomorrow, a decade from now, maybe we'll all be in heaven when he decides to go, to, 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 to return to earth and, and, and bring an end to things. I don't know. But that only proves the point. If Jesus does not come in our lifetime, that just means when our lifetime ends, we go to Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, he may not come in our lifetime. I don't know. He hasn't come in many people's lifetimes. But guess what I know about everybody that's lived and died? They went to him. Whether he came and got them or not. Does that make sense? So whether he rolls the sky back and says, come on home now, and whether that message gets under, you know, whether you respond to that message or not, eventually our lives are going to end. He may call us home. He may return. I don't know. But eventually, we're going to stand in front of him and be judged for what we did in this life, how we lived and why we lived. And when our time on earth is over, that will determine the subject of our judgment. So when you consider all this, where does our greatest risk lie? What do you think? Is it missing out on trophies and treasures and trips in this short life? Or is it missing out on preparing for eternity? And I'm not saying that you can't have a treasure trove. I'm not saying that your trophy case shouldn't be full. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a scrapbook full of memories. But if those days take priority or those things take priority over the main thing, how foolish will it prove to be on Judgment Day? How foolish. Jesus repeats the message again and again and again. And, and, and down in verse 42, through the end of the chapter, he he. He leans into this even more. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How many times has he said that in this passage? Several. If you read the whole thing, he says it a lot more. At 45, he, he leans into the, the judgment day itself. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Doing what? Doing what God called you to do. There's no specifics there because we're all different. We're all unique and we all have a different purpose under the banner of living for God. Blessed 46 should be a verse you memorize and put on, you know, this, this should encourage you on the hard days. It should motivate you on days that you're discouraged because work isn't what it should be. Your family isn't what it should be, but you're doing the best you can. You're being as faithful as you can be. 46 should be a life verse for us. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. There, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, degree of success. There's no, hey, you're, you know, you're better than them, or you did more than them. It's doing what God called you to do. It's being the person God called you to be, as faithful as you can be. I love, and you know, God inspired that verse to be open ended for a reason to help all of us see our place in this. But, and he says, surely I say to you, he will make him a ruler over all of his goods. So there is a reward. We've talked about that. There's a reward for being faithful, but 47, 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants. Now, this goes in a direction that maybe doesn't describe what we would do. But what he's saying about this servant or servants in those days, the, the servant begins to live as if he's not accountable to the master. And this is a worst case scenario. He beats his fellow servants. He just eats and drinks with the drunkards. I mean, so this is, a, this is a servant who just completely lives without accountability. Doesn't regard his master for nothing. 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he's not aware of and will, will cut him into and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know that's a little bit much. We're going to talk about that. Don't worry. He repeats and repeats and repeats. Do not underestimate what's at stake. Do not risk your eternity. Prepare with your earthly life and the very best eternal life awaits you. I mean, verse 45 paints a picture of a great and awesome empowering reward. But the last few verses paint an opposite picture. And we've got to listen to Jesus in these verses. Look, l listen, 99% of everything that ever comes out of Jesus' mouth is the most warm, uplifting, delightful, compassionate word you'll ever hear. So clearly God loves us. Clearly he forgives. Clearly he wants the best for us. But there are some things that Jesus says that we don't really know what to do with because it doesn't really, don't really like the way that sounds. Uh, and we can't just pretend it's not there. We can't. We're just like, you know, we get, we get critical of people who says, who, who change the, what is sin or what isn't sin. But ignoring this is just as bad. Ignoring the reality of judgment day is just as bad as saying that certain things aren't sinful or so forth. His words are pretty rough in verse 50 and 51. They, 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 they're pretty ruthless. And it really describes a ruthless relationship between a master and a servant in those days. We, we know that God is not ruthless. 
God is gracious and merciful. The Bible describes God early on as being merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So God is that God. Even in this passage, God is that God. So what do we do with cut him to pieces? Well, I don't think that part is to be taken literal because literally the very next part of that verse says that he's appointed his portion with the hypocrites. So the idea there is he's not literally cutting the person in two. There's some reprimand, there's some, there's some punishment, but the man's still alive after that. Does that make sense? The man's not literally sawed in half. The man is, is, is in the culture that it was, he's, he's reprimanded, and then he's appointed to a place with the hypocrites because he's not any different. But then it says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anytime you read that in the Bible, that is a way of describing a person who is facing the most intense sorrow imaginable. I don't have to describe this for you. All of us have been heartbroken. All of us have, have faced some, some very deep sorrow before. That's the, that's the description of someone who is sobbing, who is literally grinding their teeth together as their eyes pour out. So this is not really about pain inflicted, but about immense regret being felt. Now, flip back over to 25. There's a parable in Matthew 25, often called the parable of the talents, and we've covered it before. It begins right after the scripture we read at the opening. And Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven in another way. He's done this several times now. In verse 14, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them or delivered his property to them. So Jesus illustrates our lives as if they're God's property which that's a very good way of looking at your life. We belong to God. We have been entrusted with God's property from our person to our purposes to our possessions. Our bodies, our talents, our gifts, our opportunities, all of it is God's property. It's God's goods. It's God's creation. You and me and all that we are and all that we do and all that we've been given the opportunity to do. So the story goes, the master of this uh, uh, gives out different uh, amounts of money to these servants and two of them make the most of it and one of them, one of them doesn't make the most of it, let's say. Down in verse 24, it says, he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that you would be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. I, 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 I just put it away so I could give it right back to you and you couldn't tell me I did the wrong thing with it or didn't do enough with it. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown you gather and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have at least deposited the money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has more will be given and will, he will have abundance. But from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, let me make this very clear. This is a servant. This is a child of God in this story. This is a Christian in this story. 
The servant was given the property of God from his person to his possessions, from his purposes. He took what God gave him and he did not use it for the calling on his life. He did not leverage it for God's glory. The servant was not thrown into hell. When Jesus talks about hell, he talks about fire and punishment and suffering. What he describes here is not divine retribution. What he describes here in that last verse Weeping and gnashing of teeth is self-inflicted regret. Now listen, I know, I know, it's very easy. And I, I sat in church all my life, and I'm not, I'm not pointing at preachers. It's very easy to preach this, heaven, hell, that guy went to hell, because that, that makes it a lot easier to preach and doesn't require this uncomfortable conversation to be had. But that guy didn't go to hell. The image here is that in the kingdom of God, like in the ancient world where kingdoms were built in the center of the city is a glorious castle a glorious mansion where the king lives with his children and the guests of honor in the inner area of the city there is life there is luxury there is joy there is celebration but outside the city walls the lights go out there are people who live in the who lived in those cities who lived on the outskirts who lived outside the walls where it was very very dark. They could hear the celebration. They could hear the music. They could, they could smell the festivities. They were citizens of the kingdom, but they were in outer darkness where there was self-inflicted immense regret. The moral of the story Eternity should not be taken lightly, should it? What we do with our lives now is all but preparation for the life we will experience next. It determines what kind of life we get to experience next. Judgment will determine how full that life is. Jesus has showed us how to fully prepared. So why would we risk being found unprepared? Why would we? It all goes back to the parable that we read at the beginning. Five were wise, five were foolish. What determined their wisdom? What, does, what separated the wise from the foolish? How full, how full their oil flask were. How full their tanks were, if you will. In the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a symbol for the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we are filled with or can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are expected to be walking in step with the Holy Spirit. So the question comes down to this, spiritually speaking. Are you filled and being replenished with the Spirit of God? Or are you running on empty because you've chosen to fill your life with other things? That's the question. That's the message of these parables. In, in Matthew 25, verse 9, the, the, the wise girls seem a bit heartless because they refuse to share with the others. But, and they say, go and buy for yourselves. But here's the reality of Spirituality. As much as being in a big group may conceal our individual conditions, at the end of the day, what matters isn't how we feel in here, it's what we leave with. 
The reality of spirituality is it's personal. From our pursuit to our possession, it's what we individually pursue and possess. Fortunately, we don't have to buy anything. It's not a costly thing for us. We have to just pursue it and receive it. So spiritually speaking, the question is, where are you at? Are you warm because you're standing next to someone else's fire? Or are you yourself with an oil flask that's full? With the Spirit of God filling you and replenishing you and leading you and guiding you and directing you? Spiritually speaking, where are you? How are you? When it's all said and done, it comes down to our relationship with Jesus. And here's what we know. God equips us and enables us and empowers us. God does the heavy lifting. God's the one who gives us what we need. He's equipped us. He enables. He empowers to be the person that we've been called to be. You know, I can only speak from my perspective. As a 33-year-old you know, guy in this country, in this generation, there are so many goals attracting me at all times. There are so many runways and so many pathways and so many goalposts on the horizon that I keep thinking, well, that's important and that's important and that's important. Sometimes there's a sense of urgency that pressures me into thinking you're running out of time to get that, to obtain that. There are things I want personally and professionally and financially and everywhere in between. But, but, then, but then I look at Lindsay and I look at Andy and I look at you all and I look up to heaven and I realize I'm gonna be judged not by how successful I was, not by how wealthy I was, not by how many wins I had on my shelf, trophies on my shelf. I'm gonna be judged based on how faithful I was at living for God and loving God and living for and loving the people he's put in my life. It's that simple. I'm gonna stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account for how I lived as God's child, Lindsay's husband, Andy's dad, a son to my parents, a brother to my sisters, a neighbor, a friend, a pastor to all of you. That's what I'm gonna be judged by. At the end of the day, I'm gonna be judged for what I did with my life with respect to the most important people in my life and it's faithfulness in those avenues and lanes that prepare us for eternity. It all comes down. Doesn't it always come down to this? It all comes down to God and people and how we respond and how we love and how we live for them. Doesn't it always come back to that simple formula? Everything else is immaterial. But there are so many things that pose a threat to this simple formula, this simple pathway. When we stand there on that day, will it be as it was in verse 12 for these foolish, where the master, where the king, where Jesus says, I do not know you? Or will it be like it is down in verse 21, where the master says to the, uh, to the faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We're going to get one of two responses. Well done. Or as he says to that slothful servant, 
you wicked and lazy servant. I gave you everything you needed. Is the potential of being told, I do not know you, is the potential of being told you had everything you needed, but you wasted it. Listen, I, you know, I, I'm not one for emotion. I'm not one to try to make, to get under your skin and make you feel guilty and make you feel, I, listen, feelings wear off. This is about fact. This is about where your faith is at and what you are living for. And if that makes you emotional, then good. I mean, it wears on us. Is the risk of being sent into outer darkness for eternity, facing immense regret for eternity, is it worth it? It's up to you. Only you can decide what risk you're willing to take and which ones are too great. But here's what I think all of us agree on. Risking eternity will never be worth it. Right? You can make your gas go a little farther if you back off the gas and coast a little bit. And that might be worth a, a couple minutes here or there. But risking eternity is never worth it. We know that Jesus is coming soon. The question is, do our lives reflect anticipation for his return? You know how we anticipate Jesus? Not by looking up all the time, but by living for him. You show me someone anticipating Jesus, it's not the person with a chart and trying to figure it all out. It's the person living a faithful life as best they can. That's the person looking for Jesus. That's the person ready for Jesus. That's how we show we've repented and taken seriously our eternity. Our earthly life should communicate anticipation. But one thing's for sure, judgment day will make it crystal clear who's ready and who's not. What will it bring us? What will it bring us? What will be rewarded or will, we, will we be revealed that we took the risk and we're going to pay the price? Listen, I, I, all of us know, only, only you know, only you know if you're preparing for eternity. You look at your life, look at the people in your life, look at where God's put you and what role God's put you in, the person, the, the, the things he's called you to do, the people he's put you around you to love. You know if you're giving them everything you've got. You know if you're living for God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and strength. You know what you're doing. You know what risk you're weighing and which ones you're prioritizing. And only you, only you can make the conclusion that I am ready for judgment day. And I promise you this, I absolutely believe the best is yet to come. The best is on the other side of judgment day. Amen. The best for all of us, the best we could ever dream for. Yes. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're humbled by a, a, a warning, by an urgent reminder that this life is not forever. And we exist on this earth in a short little window of time to prepare for eternity. And we know you're a good and loving God. And what you've got prepared for us must be the most amazing thing we could ever imagine. You told that one servant, you've been faithful in the few things. I've got so much more for you. Lord, we're so, we're so easily pleased. We're so distracted. We're so otherwise invested. Lord, would you help us all to fix our eyes on you today? 
and answer the question, are we prepared for eternity? Are we living the life you've called us to live? Are we putting first what you have called us to put first? Are you and the people that you've put around us and the opportunities you've given us, are those things number one in our lives? Or are we wasting them on something less, something that could be of great consequence? Lord, as we listen to this last song and sing this last song that is literally uh, inviting you and, and, and awaiting your return, help this song be a, bring a sense of urgency to us that you are coming soon. And what we do now is about preparing for what comes next. And may we all say with one voice together, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come. We ask this in his name. Amen.